You're about to hear my conversation with Andrew Vassila and Lori Kerr. We talk all about COP28, what happened there, what the biggest takeaways are, and what to look for in the future. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be here with two guests, Andrew Vassilov, who works with the McKenzie Fixed Income team with a specialty in sustainable debt, and an extra special guest, Lori Kerr, who is the CEO of FinDev Canada. Uh, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Lori, why don't we get started with you? Uh, you're uh, new to the podcast. You're outside of uh, McKenzie, which is uh, somewhat unusual for the McKenzie Investments Podcast. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure, absolutely. So um, as you've said, as you introduced, I'm Laurie Kerr, CEO of FinDev Canada. I joined FinDev Canada about uh, two and a half years ago uh, by way of the World Bank Group in Washington, D.C. Um, I spent my entire career in development finance with the private sector, almost 20 years with the Inter-American Development Bank Group on the private side, and then again with, uh, with the World Bank Group uh, supporting uh, private investment in infrastructure. Great. And maybe give us a Cole's notes on what FinDev Canada is and, and what you focus on. Sure thing. So FinDev Canada is Canada's bilateral development finance institution. We were established in 2018. Uh, we support development through the private sector. We provide financing and investment and blended finance solutions, as well as technical assistance and knowledge to support sustainable and inclusive growth in emerging markets and developing economies, all aligned with the sustainable development goals and Paris Agreement commitments. Our work um, focuses, I said, working with and through the private sector. And that's critical given the scale of development challenges across emerging markets and the need to mobilize substantially more private investment to help narrow that $4 trillion US dollar annual investment gap uh, across developing countries, again, to achieve the SDGs in, in Paris. We work across three sectors. Um, the first is sustainable infrastructure. Second is agribusiness, forestry, and their value chains. And the third is with the financial industry, so supporting local and regional banks, non-bank financial institutions, and investment funds. And as a development finance institution, we have three impact goals, which are the lenses through which we look when we make all of our capital allocation decisions. So the first is climate and nature action. The second is market development. And the third is gender equality and women's economic empowerment. Uh, and up to now, we've been operating in Latin America and the Caribbean and Sub-Saharan Africa. And beginning next year in 2024, we are expanding into the Indo-Pacific region. And our role as a DFI is really to be a bridge for commercial investment. We have a higher risk appetite for emerging mm. markets than most traditional investors. And we can help bridge information asymmetries because we only work in emerging markets. Hmm. But be clear, we are not grants, we are not aid, we are commercially oriented investors and financiers. And we don't want to distort markets, but bridge more private capital into these markets that we serve. 
Wonderful uh, explanation. Quite an interesting uh, company, interesting role. I'm sure we'll unpack uh, some more of it at, throughout the conversation. We have uh, both uh, you and Andrew here. Uh, you're hotly back from uh, Dubai. I should say coolly back from Dubai, coming back to Canada, of course. Maybe I'll start uh, with you, Andrew. What was the highlight of COP for you? And, and what are you, I guess, most taking away from it? I think that when we look at this COP, just to sort of set the stage for some folks that might be a little bit less uh, in the know, you know, COP stands for the Conference of the Parties, and it's organized by the United Nations under the Framework for Climate Change Commission. And in this case, we had COP being hosted in the United Arab Emirates. And for anyone who knows anything about the region, you know, we have a very high oil and energy producing uh, region in this case. And we and a lot of folks were coming in with, frankly, quite a great deal of pessimism, quite a great Mm. deal of questioning, are we moving in the right direction by having COP in these facilities that maybe we don't traditionally associate with climate change? But one of the things that's most interested about this being a UN-facilitated event is that it has to operate with consensus. And that's a hotly contested topic because the odds that we're going to find ourselves with our major oil-producing countries, our small island development states, and our major global economies on the same page is frankly a feat in and of itself. And so Mm -hmm. when we come to our conclusions, and frankly, this COP had many, uh, some of which that I think come quickly to mind being our pledges on methane, reaching Mm. near near zero with a private sector contingent, as well as commitments on the public side, as well as having the first ever commitment towards phasing down fossil fuel as an energy source uh, in nearly 30 COPs. Uh, We saw that this year's presidency in the UAE put themselves in a scenario to say, we were at a a fork in the road after Paris. And this was the first year of our global stock take, evaluating progress. And there's a great quote that I'm actually going to steal from uh, John Stackhouse from uh, RBC, that whether this was a coming of age moment or a midlife crisis for the COP series, (laughs) um, (laughs) we've really seen a defined fork in that road, moving us closer towards not only recognizing our goals, uh, but achieving them. So just to sort of tie that bow up, I think a lot of people were considering going into this as a finance and technology cop. And in my opinion, uh, we saw delivery on that piece in terms of Hmm. acknowledging that in 2022, we look to have hit our $100 billion commitment uh, for the first time. Uh, But we've also seen acknowledgement of some shortfalls, namely on climate adaptation funding actually falling since some of the commitments recently. But lastly, with those energy sector commitments, tripling renewable capacity by 2030, uh, with over 20 countries looking to triple nuclear capacity by 2050, and doubling the rate of energy efficiency, you know, while these do start as commitments, if we're able to see the action taken on these that we're expecting, this could be a major step forward and a true coming of age moment uh, for our COP pathways here. Wonderful summary. I suspect it might be too comprehensive for Lori to add much, but Lori, uh, anything that Andrew missed uh, from highlights that stood out to you? 
So I think that was a great summary from Andrew. I think one thing that um, was uh, is really interesting for me is the whole debate around fossil fuels and sort of the debate mm. of, you know, did we go far enough? And, and I mm. guess my thoughts on that are, it, indeed, it is historic, right? Like in the transitioning away from fossil fuels, this is the first time um, that the major that this major source of climate pollution is included in a COP decision. And the text makes it clear that this should be done in a just, orderly and equitable way, accelerating action in this decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050 transitioning is perhaps less robust than than phase out but uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna steal a quote from somebody else from the UNF Simon Steele he noted that this could be the beginning of the end of fossil fuels so I think that the direction of travel is positive and of course we'll eagerly anticipate what happens next and uh, in, a, in anticipation of a uh, cop 29. That's great. Maybe I'll uh, circle back to the, uh, Andrew, you mentioned uh, methane and the agreement reached on methane. Certainly going into COP, that was one thing that I heard most about. Walk me through uh, what that is, why it's important. And I I guess uh, with all of these things, the probability that you actually see the commitment bind uh, and you see the the reduction that people are, are after. I mean, one of the wins that we saw in the first few days of COP was a global coalition of companies. I believe it was 52 companies combining both private enterprises, uh, including Total, Shell, Exxon, uh, committing to reduce their uh, their methane emissions to near zero levels by 2030. Uh, And we also saw the formation of a a pledge fund to support that transition, namely in emerging markets, where Mm. maybe we haven't seen quite the same level of foreign investment in that in that facility. But one of the pieces that jumps to mind that frankly is even more critical is that we've seen increased levels of technical assistance being proposed uh, for being able to take the human capital and the technological capital lens and expand that impact from uh, from some of our developed economies to some of our emerging market economies. And I think some of uh, our U.S. energy sector CEOs were saying that we'll be hosting these folks and teaching them how to be able to catch and avoid these flare-ups, trying to avoid the excess burning of, run, of runoff methane, uh, and being able to really take this as a transformative step forward in decarbonizing the energy sector with some near-term wins that, frankly, don't rely on technologies that are currently out of our uh, out of our present day scope. The last thing that I just want to touch on is when we speak about methane, what is methane? We talk about decarbonization and most people think CO2, but quite a few of our other greenhouse gases are actually significantly more potent when we look at their uh, warming capabilities in terms of our climate. And methane is arguably one of those worst contributors. Uh, I believe it's about 80 times worse. So you just think for every one ton of methane, that's the equivalent of 80 tons uh, of CO2. being able to get these early wins off, particularly before 2030, while we're able to we're able to worsen those effects that will compound over time, uh, is really a great win that we've seen. And with some of the critiques coming towards bringing these energy sector executives to COP on the early stage, you know, quite a few of them did come closer uh, to walking that walk that maybe not as many expected of them. So uh, important to give them credit where credit's due. Uh, and then sort of be able to see how the public sector can expand that from there. That's great. Great summary, Andrew. Laurie, uh, coming back to you, I know that you participated in a panel at COP uh, all about uh, financing sustainable infrastructure. What did you discuss on the panel and, and what can we take from it? 
So maybe first, uh, when we talk about sustainable infrastructure, what is sustainable infrastructure? Just to sort of set the stage. So um, you can we can talk about sustainable infrastructure across maybe two dimensions. So first is economic infrastructure. So the energy, transport, water and sanitation, digital infrastructure, and also social infrastructure. So like housing, hospitals and schools and things like that. And so in this, across these two dimensions, sustainable infrastructure is is those infrastructure that are designed and, and developed and operated and maintained and even decommissioned with due consideration to economic, social, environmental, and, and climate implications. And so what does all of that mean? So these dimensions include, for example, um, minimizing carbon and environmental footprints, uh, protecting natural ecosystems and even optimizing their use, um, adapting and being resilient to climate change, um, moving mm. beyond compliance with respect to, to social aspects. And of course, um, sustainability also includes demonstrating financial viability and bringing value for money for taxpayers as, as well as investors. So that's just a little bit of a, of a framing of, uh, of what sustainable infrastructure is. And I'm going to crib yet once more from, from somebody, um, from the Secretary General in uh, Antonio Gutierrez, who uh, says that uh, infrastructure is key, as we all know this, infrastructure is key to improving productivity and stimulating economic growth, creating good jobs, um, addressing inequalities and building resilience. But it's only good if sustainability is really embedded in its core, increasing society's resilience while uh, reducing climate risk. And I, I think that's really important when we take a look at the 90 trillion US dollars of infrastructure investment that is needed to be built by 2030. And 70% of that investment is in emerging markets. And so it's a, a huge opportunity to lock in sustainability, low carbon, climate resilient growth pathways and inclusive pathways um, or not. In fact, so it's it's a huge opportunity. And what were some of the takeaways from the panel? Well, I guess I would say that there's three of them. The the first was that public money, as we all know, public money is vastly insufficient um, for all the investment mm. that is needed in infrastructure. So again, mobilizing private capital is really key. Um, that more blended finance and risk sharing uh, between public and private is needed to enable more investments uh, into more private investment into emerging markets so that we can move significantly beyond the current 4% of private capital that is flowing into these markets. So huge opportunity to bring in, in more private capital. And for me, I think the third takeaway is that the role of host country governments cannot be underestimated uh, in creating the right enabling environments, it's the policy, the legal, the regulatory, the institutional environments that are, are necessary or conducive to more private sector investment. I mean, I actually, I want to sort of follow up, Lori, on one of, one, of, one of your topics there with sort of two key questions that we get a lot in our line of thinking in terms of sustainable investments. And, and the first one, and you touched on this in your introduction, is, you know, enabling that economic growth that's both delivering positive results, both for our, our issuers, our recipients of funding, as well as our investors. You know, I know, I know you and FinDev had quite a win at COP and, you know, would love to give sort of a moment to talk about, you know, your role and accelerating not only what is blended finance, but how you folks have been transitioning and transforming that uh, and taking these countries that maybe were once thought to be uninvestable by the private sector and accelerating that forward for, for us investors. 
Yeah, thank you so much, Andrew. It's a uh, it's it's a great question, and uh, you know, as many DFIs do, we we support transactions, right? So we invest on a transaction by transaction basis because you know deals happen. Um, but one of the things we've been spending quite a bit of time on over the last couple of years, uh, particularly since uh, COP in, in Glasgow, is figuring out ways where we can mobilize private capital at scale and go beyond that transaction by transaction approach. So in fact, we made an announcement um, at COP regarding a 1.5 US dollar, 1.5 billion US dollar blended finance platform that's really designed to mobilize private capital at scale for sustainable infrastructure um, in 25 emerging markets. And one of the unique things about this platform is that there is a 70% focus on adaptation. So we're trying to trying to crack that adaptation nut. Uh, the name of this platform is called Gaia, which is uh, the Greek goddess of Earth. So we've taken that sort of metaphor or that naming of Gaia, and it's really uh, sort of motivated this, this approach in our Gaia platform. Um, we've designed this so at FinDev Canada in uh, deep collaboration and partnership with uh, MUFG. And in fact, this partnership was uh, was hatched at uh, COP in, uh, in Glasgow, as I just mentioned. Um, and we really hope that this can serve as a, as a blueprint to be replicated and adapted to you know, other sectors, maybe, maybe other markets. And it's unique in a few ways. One is that Gaia brings together uh, commercial capital, concessional capital, so public capital, and philanthropic capital to create something new. It leverages the risk mitigation effect of first loss capital from the Green Climate Fund. It was approved at the GCF's board in October. It brings in commercial insurance, uh, benefits from a foreign exchange hedging facility and a sidecar technical assistance facility for last mile project preparation. And this creates a highly efficient and innovative pairing of public and private risk sharing, again, which aims to mobilize private finance at scale to the tune of 1.4. So we're really looking to have a high mobilization. Uh, we're really pleased Gaia actually received the, an award for the best blended finance deal for NDC implementation. That's a mouthful um, at COP. And we're really excited about uh, bringing it to market. Sounds like a great initiative, uh, really exciting platform, uh, clearly something that you're passionate about that comes through very clearly. Maybe, Andrew, one, one for you. So it seems like there's a lot of innovation that's happening in debt structure in general. Uh, from your seat as a investor, uh, representing, of course, our investors through the McKinsey Fixed Income platform, how do these things uh, incorporate into different portfolios or how do you see the development of this innovation benefit clients? Yeah, 100%. And I think that when we look at these transactions, exactly as you said, innovation is the name of the game. You know, we've gone from what was initially classified as proceeds bonds, sort of green, social, sustainable, where the money was financing these projects that were delivering positive outcomes to integrating behavior bonds, where companies would see an alteration in their cost of capital, so their interest rates, uh, as a result of their let's say, decarbonization or their promotion of EDII in the, work, in the workplace and the hiring, to now really focusing on these innovative structures and whether that's outcome bonds, whether that's blended finance, so you know, integrating the multiple sources of capital like Lori was talking about. And we've been able to see that this market has, has had a couple of strong proof of concept cases that now we're really able to scale this up. You know, I think many of you are familiar with my story on the Rhino bonds. Constantine actually spoke about this a couple podcasts back. But to give the summary, rather than receiving interest payments, those payments were redirected towards wildlife sanctuaries in South Africa. And as a result, 
one of the larger climate finance groups in the world, the Global Environment Facility, which ironically enough is where Lori and I met, um, is, is facilitating a contingent conservation success payment, wh- which is proportionate to the growth rate of the black rhino population in South Africa. Hmm. And while that sounds wonky, I think that what Laurie and I have collectively come to mutually appreciate is that these projects can be profitable. These these proceeds can outperform their benchmarks. And these are actually two perfect examples here, where by delivering positive outcomes, we're seeing positive returns for clients. Because exactly as you said, Matt, you know, we're representing investors. And first and foremost has to be our fiduciary duty. And that is front okay. of mind in every decision we make, whether that's global sustainable bond, whether that's global tactical or unconstrained. You know, we have to be investors first. And what organizations like Lori have done is they've said that these countries, these LDCs or least developed countries that maybe don't have the regulatory structure or maybe don't have some of the financial efficiencies that we see in developed markets to to really tap that debt market accessibly. And they've been able to consolidate these collectively with the strength of FinDev and their partners that they've come up with and put together an innovative structure that makes these climate vulnerable countries investable for one of the first times ever right and when we're looking at these gaps i know laurie quoted our four trillion dollar gap in in the private financing side of things i think this is what we're going to see more of both in terms of our conventional capital structures on the debt side as well as these innovative transactions as countries both individually and collectively have to reach a point where to hit these goals in terms of climate finance, in terms of, as Laurie said, adaptation finance, uh, to have a fair shake at getting this done, we're going to need both the private and the public sector to approach this hand in hand. And what that means is it needs to be both profitable and positive from an impact perspective. I think what you're saying is you have to get the incentives right, which uh, I think if you go back through human history, you're pretty wise to lean into that uh, area. Laurie, I want to go back to you. One thing that you, that you said uh, that uh, caught my attention was the $90 trillion that's going to be required uh, for uh, infrastructure. But what was surprising to me is then you followed by saying 70% of that in emerging markets. When I take a step back and think about uh, largest producers of uh, emissions, clearly that's the developed world produces a lot more emissions than uh, emerging markets does. So help me understand uh, where the investment goes uh, within emerging markets and then maybe some further thoughts on aligning incentives. Sounds like you're doing a lot with the platform, but any further thoughts on that? Yeah. So, so indeed, I mean, in terms of uh, like current, um, you know, emissions, they're coming from developed markets. But when we look at the infrastructure needs in emerging markets, the reason that the need is so great is because they have traditionally been underinvested, right, um, sure. in infrastructure. So uh, a lot of that, you know, infrastructure has traditionally been sort of in the in the public remit from the public purse. And then over time, as public budgets have gotten, you know, more and more condensed over time, um, there's been huge infrastructure gaps. So thus, the the need to bring in more private investments. I mean, we take a look at um, sort of high growth rate countries. I mean, overall on the planet, we're going to have, what, 10 billion people uh, by 2050. Um, 86% of that is going to be uh, in emerging markets as projected. Mm. So the, the infrastructure that's needed to connect 
you know, people to markets, goods to markets, people to each other um, right. is absolutely critical. So there's a, a huge infrastructure opportunity. There's a need, but there's also that huge opportunity for infrastructure to be to be built in emerging markets with that sustainability lens. Again, so that we're locking ourselves into infrastructure that is not only going to set us up to least negatively contribute to climate, but actually maximize or optimize the positive opportunity uh, again to support low carbon and, and climate resilient growth pathways um, in these markets where the vast majority of uh, the population is going to be. Um, the, these are countries that are actually going to feed the rest of the world, those 10 billion uh, people, the vast majority of, of egg production is also in these countries. So the, the necessity of infrastructure to facilitate uh, bringing the, those goods to market is, is absolutely critical. I'll actually supplement that. And I think that exactly as you said, when we're looking at the growth of our population, we're looking at the growth of our economy, so much of it is going to come from these EM uh, mm. GDP growth drivers. I mean, we look at what China's meteoric rise has been mm. over the past several decades. And when we're seeing now economies like India in that in that now camp at uh, you know largest population country in the world, we're seeing countries like Indonesia being able to preliminarily start to transition their economy. We saw one of their lar- largest coal plants looking to be shutting down seven years early. And when we're seeing the net zero ambitions for these countries, exactly as Laurie said, we need to go where the issue is. We can't run away from it. And that's where I think that when we look at both public investment, private investment, is that for a long time, folks shied away from trying to tackle the problem at its source, and they tried to sit in what was safe today. But the reality is, by investing in the transition, you're creating not only opportunities for decarbonization, but for sustainable economic growth. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we look at a number of these powerhouses, part of what makes COP such a momentous event is that we're bringing all of these folks around the table at once. And again, having to reach that consensus that says for these emerging market economies, you know, we want to continue to grow our our economy. We want to continue to bring populations out of poverty and create high quality jobs for those folks. And we understand that there's an impact here, but we have to be able to focus on the collective as well as the individual economies here. And I think that when we look at the investment programs that we're talking about here, as well as those that we're committed to at COP, um, we see a great intersectional view of creating economic value, preserving environmental value, and enhancing social value uh, all around the world there. And if I could actually just pick up on that, Andrew, I think another boon from from COP is actually the the work that has been done on the Just Transition Work Program and what actually that means going forward. Uh, But the focus on Everything that you've just said in terms of transition, it has to be just, there has to be good quality jobs um, uh, to be able to lift people out of poverty. So that'll be something very interesting to uh, look at and and keep tabs on going forward towards uh, COP29. That's great. Maybe one last question for you, Laurie. As I think about the space and and where things are going, like there's just astronomical numbers, lots of optimism, lots of commitment uh, into uh, improving um, the uh, the climate and, and sustainable uh, investing. What's your growth trajectory for FinDev? And and what about like the broader universe of uh, what you dabble in? 
Absolutely. No, super question. So we, as I mentioned at the outset, we're a young DFI. So we're established in, in 2018. So we just celebrated our, our fifth anniversary. Sure. Um, fortunately, we are not capital constrained. In fact, uh, as was announced when uh, Prime Minister Trudeau announced the Canada's Indo-Pacific strategy November last, FinDev Canada featured very um, significantly in that. So uh, between now and the next three years, we have a billion dollars of new capital coming into our organization, of course, that we can leverage. So Thankfully, we're not uh, capital constrained and we're on, I like to use the good Canadian analogy of we're at a hockey stick growth curve um, and uh, we're not quite global emerging markets yet, but uh, we're getting there. So we're really looking to, to leverage the, the great capital that's been put, uh, put to FinDev Canada, uh, doubling down on the sectors. We recently went through a strategic refresh about a year ago that refined the sectors, as I mentioned, working with uh, sustainable infrastructure, ag and forestry and their value chains, and then supporting um, local, sort of the local financial industry all with a focus on, on private capital mobilization. So doubling down on these very important sectors um, for economic, uh, economic growth, uh, social advancement and climate uh, and nature action uh, across emerging markets. Again, applying those three impact lenses vis-a-vis uh, -vis sustainability of, uh, again, climate and nature, local market development, and gender equality, women's economic empowerment. So uh, we've got huge growth plans um, over our five-year uh, period, uh, including expansion into the region, um, and uh, hopefully working with a lot more great partners and uh, fomenting the relationship that uh, Andrew and I uh, started at uh, Jeff uh, earlier this year. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so exciting to see the momentum that we're see we're seeing in this space, and it's emblematic of what we should be targeting to do, not only as our country, which I'm sure we'll get to in a second, but as the world is moving in this direction. So, you know, I think as we're sort of starting to touch on the end here, you know, maybe just a quick back and forth of when you're looking ahead between now and the end of COP29, you know, what are some of the things that you're seeing? What are some of the things that you're excited about? You know, and we can talk about that either locally or from uh, a global perspective and some of the initiatives that, you know, maybe didn't quite get touched on this year, despite some of the progress that was made. So for me, one of the things that I'm I'm really interested in uh, that came out of COP, and you mentioned it yourself, was the the tripling of renewable energy and the doubling of energy efficiency. So that fits, you know, squarely within our remit at FinDev Canada. So looking to do even more in that space, um, seeing how other multilateral development finance institution and other bilaterals really embrace that space. It is full of opportunity across emerging markets. So I think that's something very interesting to keep a look at. Um, one of the other undercurrents that came uh, from COP was also the focus on the gap related to financing, right? So how the multilaterals and the bilateral agencies, how we all can come together to actually address that gap and use more of our capital to leverage private. So I think that that uh, is a really important space. It's been an important space for many years, but you'll see given the multilateral development bank reform agenda that how we're using public capital to actually leverage private capital, I think is something uh, to look at very closely and, and keep tabs on going forward. Brilliant. And if I were just to sort of supplement that with some of the perspectives that we see uh, looking ahead, you know, I think one of the balls that maybe got dropped a little bit this time, and frankly, it was talked about end to end, would be some of the progress that we'd be hoping to see in the carbon market side of things. You know, voluntary markets have seen quite a bit of uh, quite a few headwinds over the past year, and that's to be expected for a market that's continuing to grow. And some of the positive outcomes that we saw was obviously the promise of an end to end integrity standard with most of 
those major VCM institutions, you know, coming together to work towards that, you know, with our GFANS group and ensuring that we're aligning our public and our private sectors in terms of being able to have credible, high integrity carbon markets. Um, And then the other piece that comes to that is obviously taking a little bit more uh, of the lens of a UN uh, affiliated trading system in this context, which was obviously, you know, unfortunately blocked for the time being by, you know, a contingent of folks from across the world. So we're not picking on anyone in particular, um, but really being able to say that that being a theme that can be mobilized and taking some of the best themes that we have both from, you know, the evolution of the EU ETS Canada's own tier programming and sort of being able to really get to the root of saying, as the COP presidency said, you know, we're moving towards a collective mentality rather than an isolated mentality. And part of that is going to result in us being able to not only measure, but manage our collective decarbonization. And I think that, you know, as Carney and many others were saying, this could be one of the largest economic opportunities to capitalize on. And for those emerging markets, like Lori's talking about, that can be getting ahead of this curve, Mm. you know, can be such a credible and high quality uh, economic story that comes from enhanced decarbonization investments. Andrew, that's a great supplement, probably a wonderful uh, note to end on. Lots of uh, optimism and opportunity, but still lots of work to do as well. So Andrew, Laurie, thank you so much for spending time with me. Really appreciate it. Excellent insights. Uh, Thank you very much. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Always a pleasure, Matt. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 